0: This is a box Media Podcast. Murder Was the Case is a free-form conversational podcast which makes educated speculations about criminal cases and human psychology based upon the information we have reviewed. The show is intended to entertain and educate our listeners with regard to criminal psychology and behavior. At no point should the content of Murder Was the Case, whether spoken by a host or guest, be misconstrued as a formal professional opinion or diagnosis, nor as a wholly accurate or complete account of any case. Any person discussed as a suspect or potential suspect is innocent unless a court of law determines otherwise. If you dig Murder Was the Case on Glassbox Media, follow us on Twitter or Instagram at MurderWTCase,
1: or on TikTok at MWTC podcast. When they looked at the kind of people who would have it, they're the kind of people most likely to be in an abusive relationship. And one of the symptoms is they evoke anger in others. Hmm, There's no more victim blaming than that. Your honor. My client couldn't help himself. His wife has this disorder, It's a mental disorder, and look what it says. It evokes anger from others.: You are listening to murder,"
0: was the case, exploring the darkest, most perverse, and bestial crimes known to man on glass box media. During my recent trip to Toronto, I met up with MWTC's favourite Canadian psychologist, Dr. Oren Amitay, to talk about domestic abuse, physical, sexual, and beyond. It is a topic we have not devoted much time to on this show, so consider this an overview from somebody who has clinical experience with both victims and perpetrators. As always, Oren is controversial and doesn't sugarcoat unpleasant truths. You have been warned. Welcome to the Murder Was the Case Dive Bar, everybody. I am back. First time since twenty nineteen in the great city of Toronto. And I have Dr. Aaron Amate here with me. He's one of the most beloved guests on the show. I think you've been on maybe three times total. I think so. Yeah, the first time we just generally talked about psychology. I think we got into Freud, is it bullshit or not? Same with emotional intelligence. Right. And we covered some general concepts, psychosis versus personality disorders. We jumped on Get Vocal one time and just talked about personality disorders. Mm -hmm. That was very informative. And then, of course, we talked about the whole trans issue as well. So this time, Oren, I'd like to speak to you about a topic that I really have no expertise on whatsoever. And I have as much interest as I need for what I do. But because it doesn't typically involve any type of investigation... I just don't really gravitate toward it, but I think it's really important that we cover it. And that's domestic abuse. Right. So do you have any particular experience in a clinical setting or do you have any particular expertise in looking at domestic abuse? And it doesn't have to be physical. It could also Mm -hmm. be like something like coercive control and we can get into what all that is.
1: Yes, so um, unfortunately, I have a lot of experience with this, um, both as a psychologist treating patients and also as someone who did mostly parenting capacity assessments for the courts, for Children's Aid Society, custody access cases. So there was a lot of alleged and proven, basically, domestic violence of varying forms. So the topic, it can go in so many different directions. It does unfortunately correlate with so many bad histories, bad uh, outcomes, And, you know, both as a causal factor and also as a result of these things. So there's so many different ways we can go with it. So yes, I have lots of experience and I teach about it a lot in my clinical psychology class, my psych disorders class, human sexuality class. Unfortunately, it is a topic that pervades most classes, I should say.
0: Okay. So let's look at it like you're about to begin teaching us as a class. So where do you begin and then take us through the modules?
1: (laughs) Well, we don't have enough time for the entire uh, journey, but the most important thing I start off with is saying, and you sort of alluded to this, which is before we even begin, we have to agree on what are the terms. If someone says domestic violence, and I say this to my students, I go, what percentage you know, of people do you think have experienced domestic violence? Sometimes I say in the past year, sometimes I say in their lifetime with their current partner, I can phrase it different ways, but it doesn't matter because I get a crazy wide range of answers. You know, it's all anecdotal. They don't know whether they saw it on TikTok or, you know, in a movie or they studied or they lived it themselves. I have people who say when I t- I'm going to tell you one stat that's going to blow your mind and I've been literally disinvited to numerous dinner parties when I say this, because, and I, I'm kind of foreshadowing here, but the recipient of this information once looked at me and said, how dare you say that? I'm telling you that every single one of my friends is abused and you say that bullshit. And so the audience is wondering, what is that bullshit? And some people will know, I guarantee you, some people are gonna go, I know exactly what he's saying. So I do that in class. So there's two things I do. One is I talk about definitions. So I say, whatever the rate is, I say I can get that rate up to about 98%, if not 100%, okay? And I say, and, and how do I do that? And some people with the savvy or experience or the critical thinking, or they've had this experience, and I've had this numerous times, I've seen it, where if a partner yells at the other partner, that gets written in the books as domestic violence. Not that they're threatening to kill them, okay? Not that they're coercing them. They just call them a bad name or something. Neighbors hear it. They report the police. police get, you know, Are your kids here? Yeah, they're upstairs. They're sleeping, whatever. They didn't hear anything. Sorry. You know, And some police will say, this is the law your children are at risk even if they weren't directly involved We have to call children in society and now you have a whole process starting okay so there are so many people who get tarnished with that term who didn't deserve it and I'll just tell you when sorry when I when I've done an assessment I'll get the file I'll look through it and I'll see you know domestic violence domestic abuse I go through the file and I say to the worker I say where is the domestic violence I don't see it Hmm. right and when I talk to other people, whether it's the, the caseworkers, whether it's doctors, police, anyone who knows this label, domestic violence, you see the change in the demeanor. You see how they've already tarnished the person uh, with, with that term. And you know their schema for this is just it's rightfully reprehensible, but it's unfair if you didn't earn that label.
0: Yeah, conflict and violence aren't the same thing. And conflict can be unpleasant. You can have a household where there's too much conflict and there's too much yelling, but it's not the same as somebody hitting you or molesting you or manipulating you. Or threatening your life. Exactly. So, why is this confusion in place?
1: Unfortunately, this is a trend that we're seeing a lot in different institutions, whether it's academia, research, even policing, because there's certain people with an agenda. Mm. And I'm not saying that it's a maniacal agenda, but because they may have had certain experiences. They have a very, I'd say, rigid and narrow and distorted view of the world. And they believe that because their view of the world is right, that they are trying to protect all women or they're trying to protect society and so on. So they think they're just in their actions. I think a lot of them just, they're not good scholars, so they're not doing it even intentionally. They just don't know, oh, if I ask this leading question, I'm going to get certain results and then I'm gonna spread these false statistics.
0: Yeah, because they've started with the answer and then they're finding ways to justify it. And that's not how you go about any, it's not even like scientifically that's wrong, but even in many methodologies that aren't scientific, you wouldn't do it that way. Right, exactly.
1: So you have to think, I just said this to my class this morning. I say, when stupid people do stupid things, that's par for the course. When smart people do stupid things, you have to Mm -hmm. wonder what's going on. Okay. So again, whether it's deliberate, whether it's unconscious bias, they're just not doing the field any favors. Now, here's the stat. Just people might wonder, and I might forget if I don't say it. I say this in my first class and it pisses people off. I've had students leave the class. I've had students write complaints because they don't like the truth. And again, this is what's got me disinvited. Mm-hmm. I say, in the last 40 to 50 years of research in Canada and the States, I say the number is usually pretty consistent. I say, if you're looking at a pool of survivors of domestic violence, what percentage are men? What percentage are women? And what do you think a lot of people will say?
0: Well, they're going to assume that women are overwhelmingly the victims of domestic violence and not the perpetrators. But I would say it's probably about even.
1: Excellent. And when people hear that, it just drives me crazy so it's either 50 50 or at the most 40 60 in favor of women
0: when you say in favor of women
1: meaning not, sorry not in favor i'm sorry that they are unfortunately predominant the victims yeah that's not in favor in the, in the positive. Okay. i'm sorry yes just, just, just speaking thank you yes
0: because yeah. even right. either way if they're the victims more or the they're, they're the perpetrators more, right. i don't think either one does women does Service. No, oh.
1: definitely not. No, yeah, again, yeah. it was a statistical. Um, okay. I understand. Yeah, yeah. Now, here's the problem though it goes back to terminology. There's two things about that. One is yes, it's 50 50 or 60 40. But two, when you look at the different types of domestic violence perpetrated, it's very different. Hmm. Okay, but here's the thing. I, so I show tables and I show the stats to my students, and I don't say which is men, which is women. And I say, try to guess which is which. And it blows their mind because they can't figure it out because they see, okay, women, women, women. Wait, the color is different. That bar is men. How is that higher? That doesn't make sense. Mm. Kicking, throwing objects, punching, it's got to be men. No, it's women. It's overwhelmingly yeah. women. But the worst types of abuse, including murder, are overwhelmingly perpetrated by men. So that's one thing. So if I say it's 50-50, without that caveat that, but the worst types are committed by men, I'm being dishonest and you should question my motives.
0: Has mm. that got something to do with capacity, perhaps? So men realize that they have more capacity to do Deadly damage, and so they hold back. They don't dole it out quite as freely, but then when they are doing that, it, for those same reasons, tends to go to the extreme.
1: In some cases, yes. The men who understand, and you'll see it a lot of times men are like, I don't want to do it, and they're trying to get out of the way the assault was him trying to get past her because he knew it was going to escalate you know she's blocking him and stuff so it can be that they're holding back and then when they lose control then all bets are off so yes and there's a whole bunch of different reasons a whole bunch of um manifestations of it and the thing is here's one stat that i haven't seen that that much i've seen enough to say i think is true most domestic violence is bi-directional yeah and in the cases where it's unidirectional it's more like the woman who perpetrates it really yeah Mm. when it's unidirectional and again the people will argue well she's just protecting herself what you call abuse and other people say no no she's lashing out she thinks it's okay he's defending himself by the way i'm assuming your listeners are much better than this but there are a lot of people who hear this and i have to say this to my class caveat after caveat where i say i'm not trying to defend domestic violence in any way (laughs) even if it's a quote-unquote minor infraction it can still be terrifying nobody should ever diminish the person's experience but i'm saying statistically we can't Ignore those and here's the statistic that pisses me off. I was at a friend's birthday dinner out for drinks and I somehow again domestic violence came up and I broke up the stats and the woman was furious. So I said, look, I'll just bring it up. So I'm trying to bring up on my phone, stats can. Okay? Mm-hmm. Because stats can, if you look at the past years, it shows, you know, and there's different ways they do it. Past year, current partner, historical, and they show again 50 percent men consistently. But here's the thing. Up until I forget which year, I'm gonna say 2014, maybe. If I'm off by two years, that's just my memory. But they had two types of stats. One was the survey stat, where they answered, you know, I guess to the people who are taking this information, and the other was police report. The survey stats, 50-50 or 40-60 at worst. The police report, of course, as much as we rightfully say women don't want to report abuse, violence, sexual assault, and so on, right? As much as they don't want to report it, men are far more likely not to report it. So in the old days, they showed both stats, what's reported to the police and then what they report to the people investigating it. And then the next year 2016 I believe they showed only what the police report but there's an asterisk and then down there in a tiny footnote it says but in a survey directly it was equal 50-50 something like that okay right. and then the following year there was only the police report and nothing else it doesn't say anything about if it was just a survey it would be different numbers so they're giving information to bias people to maintain this narrative and again I've had friends say or sorry, not friends. I've had X, you know, people say, every person I know, everyone I know has been assaulted. It's like, what's the evidence for that? What are the odds of that happening? That's pretty high. Because normally, we're, and again, I'm not trying to diminish the numbers. It can be 4%. It can be 13%, depending on what criteria you're using. It's not like 50% of women are being abused. But 50% of certain types of women or women with certain histories or in certain contexts Okay. They are more likely to be abused. So if you are biased in your selection of who's answering, you can get much higher numbers.
0: It's interesting that you say it's bi-directional because I've never had domestic violence in any of my many relationships and I've never perpetrated it. Right. I've always been able to just, when somebody's yelling in my face or being irrational, just to realize, okay, it's time to leave or just to stay calm. Right. So I wonder, is it my non-reaction? Because I'm not really someone that screams at someone repeatedly it's just not what i do i'm more likely to calmly state that i think what happened is really messed up
1: right well there are certain people like that who will you know de-escalate through non-escalation or non-engagement but here's the thing and i don't know your past well enough so let's just say just like a sadly high and i'll give you the numbers if you want proportion of women report having been a victim of some kind of child violence whether sexual or physical psychological well boys as well they're slightly lower numbers right so if a person has a history of trauma and they've got something yelling in their face the triggering that it can do we can see that it would be hard for them to access the prefrontal cortex their limbic system's on fire
0: yeah definitely i think we all know what that feels like like your fight or flight goes into play but i just don't imagine that with somebody is sustaining that level of aggression that i would stay (laughs)
1: well, <laughs> in a situation
0: with them. But then I've always had the option to leave.
1: And that's the thing. Now we're not looking at the physiological reaction. Now we're looking at the psychological, mental gymnastics that people do to either prevent themselves from recognizing the situation they're in or convincing themselves that it's impossible to get out Mm -hmm. and in some cases it can seem impossible there is financial dependence there are women who've had their lives threatened they the person followed them to the shelter or found out where it was or they returned to him and he just beat the living daylights out of them i've seen way too many cases so i said this many years ago i'm facetious but i'm serious where i say it's like they give these domestic abusers violence 101 Mm -hmm. because they follow the same game plan isolate the person so they can't get the support they can't bounce their perceptions off of other people it goes in their heads then they're questioning themselves. They're being gaslit. Some of the worst types of abuse is gaslighting, making someone believe they're crazy, that their Mm. grasp on reality is off. So they isolate them and they also make them feel that they're worthless. You can't do without me. And if I don't feel I've got anybody else out there and I'm all alone and I'm being told I'm worthless and I'm useless, I don't have the wherewithal to jettison myself from that situation.
0: It sounds also like uh, cult indoctrination or behavior. I'm just researching that right now. And the researcher that I'm reading really insists that the person you run away from is also the person you run to in a cult and that is something that human beings just can't process cognitively and it leads them to dissociate because okay, I'm scared of you, but you're the only person I've got, or I think you're the only person I've got. Because cult leaders, I don't think, take courses on how to be a cult leader. I would wonder how they pick this up.
1: Yeah, some have natural charisma, whether it's the energy, whether it's oxytocin release when they look at you, whether it's just experience of manipulation, coercion, Mm -hmm. um, being able to read people, knowing what to say that makes people feel good. That's like the famous love bombing. It's just incredible, and the person feels wonderful. And so... They get used to feeling a certain way for the first time in their life, usually, because if you're a quote unquote normal person and someone love bombs you, you're you're more immune to it, right? You're not so desperate for this validation and so on, but if you've been seeking that, Mm. and then it happens, it's being heaped on you. Like, you know, you're out of your league here. Like, you're just, Mm. right? And and, and you become used to that feeling. It's like a drug almost. And that becomes imprinted on you. And this is this imprinting. I can't say I have scientific evidence for it. I have clinical anecdotal evidence. Mm. I've seen many people where, and this is so important, where they and again I, I pick up the pattern after seeing it happen many times and you know the people are, are varying let's say um, qualities and and wherewithal and so on or intelligence but i'm going to give you like the prototypical someone who's attractive intelligent sweet good person male female doesn't matter successful mm-hmm. and they're with a loser mm-hmm. and in each of these cases and in other cases as well where everyone else can see how bad it is but they can't in each case this person came into their life during a time of negative, bad transition, it could be a trauma or something, oftentimes loss of a parent, it could be a breakup of a relationship or the partner's treating them badly, whatever. They're at their low. This person comes in, fulfills all their needs in that moment or seeming needs, mostly emotional. They're the one person who they feel safe and secure within. That gets imprinted on them. It's almost like they go into childlike mode because. Any evidence that comes afterwards that to the contrary, that this person is a great person or is trustworthy and so on, everyone else sees it, but they can't see it. And part of them does. Like in therapy, you can access the rational part. Mm. They feel calm. They don't feel like they're going to be judged. They're willing to go there temporarily to acknowledge it sometimes. But then when it's outside of therapy where they have to make the action or take the action, make a decision, confront them, hold them to account, leave, whatever, they feel paralyzed. They just can't do it because they don't have that support right there. So that's part for some people because they just don't have that uh, ability, and for others, it's just that imprinting where they just don't want to leave the person. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hurt them. So, so they're, again, there's so you know we're, we're not going we're going to barely scratch the surface in trying to look at all the different variations.
0: The love bomber, the person yes. that comes into someone's life and makes them feel special and loved and unique, is that person calculating? Do they start off saying, "Well, I'm an abusive piece of <laughs> shit"? And this is the way I've done it in the past, or I didn't do it this way in the past, but now I'm going to do it this way and see if it works better. I'm going to convince this person to like me by laying out all of these compliments and gifts and so on. And then at some point I'm going to reveal my true self, or do they lie to
1: themselves? Door number two. Yeah exactly i was going to say it's calculated in the sense that they become conditioned they know it works but everything you mentioned all those levels of insight are absent in their case okay they do it and they lie to themselves more than anyone else their level of projection where here's an example and and people think i exaggerate it's not exaggerating i could say the most racist thing in the world to you right now and then without missing a beat saying why are you such a racist To you, right? That's literal, you know, metaphoric uh, projection of their own disavowed impulses or behaviors or, you know, feelings and so on. Put it right onto you. That's how disconnected from reality they're. Now, they're not delusional. I've said this many times. I say this person comes as close to delusional as you can get without actually being delusional. The difference is with someone who's literally delusional, gun to head, doesn't matter. They're still going to keep repeating the delusion. It it will not change without medication. The person like this, usually a narcissist, malignant narcissist, psychopath gun to head they'll still deny it deny it whatever and then when you know the gun's cocked that's when they will you know say okay 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 and then they'll go somewhere into some other gear and expect you to forget about the thing that just happened right Mm -hmm. so this is just like wow it's it's stunning so that's just how disconnected they are from their motives from what they're doing the harm they're causing when people say empathy they go someone doesn't have empathy there's two types and i don't want anyone to say they're an empath get off the (laughs) interwebs Empath is a different thing, okay? That means you have bad boundaries, okay? I don't want to minimize people's experiences because people who have bad boundaries typically have traumatic histories. I'm just saying don't take your cues from these magazines and so on or these, you know, blogs. So true empathy, though, there's two types. There's emotional empathy. That's through mirror neurons, right? The old traditional, if I yawn, you'll yawn as well, right? Or if I'm feeling really sad, you can feel some sympathy for me and compassion and empathy. So that's emotional. But the cognitive empathy is the ability to take the other person's perspective, okay? And so if I can take your perspective and I realize, oh, doing all this is going to mess up your life, right? If I'm not a monster, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that to you. But they just don't have that perspective. And that's why they can make these crazy lies that seem so delusional okay because they can't imagine what the other person listening to them is processing this as in that moment they feel they need to say it it's going to make them feel good to either get out of the situation or to make themselves feel powerful or to deceive somebody whatever it is in that moment it feels good so they're going to do it in that moment's all that counts they don't think about any other moment in that moment so they don't worry about oh i just said 10 seconds ago the exact opposite to somebody else who's standing right beside me they're not thinking that they're not putting those pieces together Okay, so even very intelligent people can do these ridiculous things where you go, how can you be so stupid? Or do you think I'm that stupid? All right. When I first dealt with them clinically, I got upset. Like the guy's lying to me so obviously. And it's going to be so easy for me to prove him wrong. Why would he insult me? And my mentor told me he's not even thinking about that. He just can't fathom that I would call him out or that he wouldn't be able to get away with it or that I would not see it the way that he's going to explain it. He just can't think that way. He has no perspective to him.
0: I have met people like that, definitely. And I think I've been in relationships with people like that. So I don't know if that was psychological abuse. There's definitely mm-hmm. times where I was sure. with someone who tried to convince me that a different set of things happened right. than yeah. what had happened. But I guess just cause I'm really disagreeable. I was like, no, <laughs> no, it didn't not falling for it No. And I just assumed that they were mentally ill.
1: Right. And technically, personality disorders are a mental illness, but I like to distinguish the two. I just say they have shitty personalities and there's different types of personality disorders. And so for someone who's that harmful and malignant, I don't have much empathy. I'll work with them. I'll try to help them change behavior for the good of themselves, for their family, for society. Um, But if someone, for example, has borderline personality disorder or has had a history of trauma and it's distorting their perceptions, nothing I say should be misconstrued as mocking them, belittling them in any way. It's nothing but compassion for people like that because it's just horrific experiences that they went through. And daily living is horrific.
0: Yes. This person was histrionic, I think. Mm -hmm.
1: Right. So, yeah, just no emotional connection, no emotional depth. So she wouldn't feel the normal thing. like, Oh, my God, I feel bad for trying to deceive him or something.
0: I've noticed with histrionic women, and I'm saying women because that's the people I've had this with, mm-hmm. although I think females are overrepresented as histrionic yep. personalities too, that you'll say to them, look, you lie to me. This is not the first time you've lied to me. And I don't really want to see you anymore. We go our separate ways and then they pop up like, it could be three months later, six months later. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> no, I made it clear to you. And so what is that? Is that this idea of, well, I'll just give it a little bit of time and he'll forget.
1: This is something that's not in the DSM, but anyone who's worked with enough people with histrionic personality disorder recognizes. It's like I said earlier about that lack of emotional depth. Yeah. Because if they can really feel deeply, they feel very superficially. So their emotions fluctuate all over the place, right? And it's never a deeply felt emotion. It's very, very superficial. Mm. But if they could feel like the deep pain, especially if they could kind of empathize with yours or anger or whatever else, they would recognize, oh, this is situation was not the kind that i can just walk back to easily but you're talking like a couple of months i've seen it happen like at the end of a session okay wow all right whether it's narcissistic whether it's histrionic same because again they just don't recognize from the other person's perspective and again because they don't experience emotions deeply it just doesn't resonate with them so they can just bounce from one situation to the next from one mood to the other
0: and so. that's a characteristic of cluster b personality disorders
1: right the way they manifest it might be different Mm-hmm. Okay but that idea of that lack of emotional connectivity and again lack of empathy for sure.
0: Okay so we'll bring it back from the personality disorders a bit but you're sure. saying that obviously they're going to be in play in abuse situations what else is there any link to neuroses like is depression or explosive anger correlated with abuse?
1: Well this is the thing so many different variables would be correlated with abuse whether the perpetrator or the victim and it's not blaming the victim we're just saying statistically Mm -hmm. speaking certain people find themselves in these situations whether it's to meet unfulfilled needs whether it's because their sense of self is so diminished that they don't think that they could do any better or they're more susceptible to the brainwashing and the gaslighting and the Mm -hmm. making them feel like shit so that's one example. As far as the perpetrators, right? Again, it's very easy if you don't feel other people's pain and confusion and hurt and so on. It's so easy to perpetrate. So we have that for sure. But the other thing is, though, if you look underneath it all, you use neuroses. If we did the big five and we we're looking at, and I'm not, I'm not a fan of using big, like some people overuse it. I like it. <laughs> oh, no, it, it can be yeah. for, for populations. It can be very telling. Yeah. And the correlations are very powerful, depending on which, how well you do the test. It's got to be the full Not the big five, not the 50 questions. It's going to be 200 something questions to do it right. But if you look at it like neurotic personality, neurotic temperament, that like underlies everything. Yeah. Right. And that could be whether it's directly related to the situation or it's fueling another personality disorder or it's fueling another behavior like addiction or superficiality, whatever, like behavior traits. It can all be stemming from this, you know, this neurotic temperament.
0: Which is like having a storm inside you.
1: You could say that for sure. I have high neurosis. It sucks. (laughs) I'm neurotic in different ways. Like I tell my students, I've learned to channel, I've learned to sublimate it. But with my history, with my temperament, with my genetics, I'm not surprised that I have it.
0: Also, I would think agreeableness is a Mm -hmm. factor too. I would imagine Mm -hmm. that perpetrators have lower agreeableness (laughs) and victims have higher agreeableness. Yes.
1: This is where the codependency comes in. And this is where in the DSM-3R, they were careful because they wanted to have self-defeating personality disorder. I'm telling you right now, it exists. They try to say, well, we can kind of subsume it under borderline personality or it's, or it's kind of more like dependent or avoidant. saying, like, No, 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 no. Self-defeating is its own character disorder. Hmm. But the problem was that when they looked at the kind of people who would have it, they're the kind of people most likely to be in an abusive relationship. And one of the symptoms is they evoke anger in others. Hmm, there's no more victim blaming than that your honor. My client couldn't help himself His wife has this disorder. It's a mental disorder and look what it says It evokes anger from others. She offers help when they don't want it She tends to sacrifice herself put herself in inferior positions. This is not my client. He didn't manipulate her That's who she is She dragged him into and I've got all these witnesses to say. Yeah, she was the problem one So they didn't put in the DSM because they didn't want it to contribute to further victimization of certain types
0: Okay, so how would she or he evoke violence in this situation by being consciously
1: annoying? No, definitely not conscious. And it's not usually violence, though. It's usually just, you know, anger. Right. It takes a certain type of person to act on them. Exactly. Yeah. So
0: a healthy person might react to someone with self-defeating personality disorder, which is hypothetical, and say, you know... You drive me up the wall. I think we should go our separate ways. And then the unhealthy person hits that person.
1: Yes. That would be one manifestation of the unhealthy tendencies.
0: Can you give me some examples of how somebody could evoke anger?
1: Oftentimes through passive aggression. So let's say they see their partner working really hard in the garden. Okay. And they come, and they make this elaborate meal. And they say, can I bring it out? They go, no, I'm busy. I'm busy. Can I bring it out? No, I'm busy. Please wait, wait. You know, honey, I really want to bring it out for you. I'm busy. Okay, and then like he's, let's say, doing some digging or whatever, throws the dirt with a shovel and it lands all over the food and everything else like that. Mm. Okay, that would be an example where he could just be like, what a waste. And he also feels diminished. Like, did you not hear me? He doesn't understand that she's not trying to be dominant over him. Her own neurosis, her own anxiety is compelling her to act in a way that's not in her best interest. But you can interpret that as you're diminishing or undermining me. So
0: self-defeating seems like it would be cluster C if you were to put it into a cluster. That's with obsessive compulsive personality disorder, dependent and avoidant. Yes. Okay. There is also a passive aggressive personality disorder.
1: Which again, is not a technical DSM disorder, but we have that. And in the MCMI, the Millen Clinical Multiaxial Inventory, now we're at the fourth edition, he calls it negativistic. Hmm. Because that term passive aggression it just evokes so much negative feeling. So why not call it negativistic? It's a better sell. Yeah, it's the same type of qualities. There's a lot of overlap. And look, this is just people trying to taxonomize a cluster of behaviors and so on. It's not
0: perfect. So you find that there are people that seem to always get into abusive relationships. Right. That's something I've noticed because I've never really been in one. I guess you could say that I, I got out of one you know, right. with the histrionic person, but for the number of girlfriends I've had. I'm 40. I'm unmarried. I've never really been in a situation where I feel I've seriously been abused. And I certainly haven't abused anyone. Mm -hmm. So is that something to do with my personality? And then maybe the personalities of the people that gravitate toward me, whereas there are other people that... They have personalities that subconsciously or maybe consciously select for abusive partners.
1: No one answer is correct, of course, but there's a few things. One, they did a study years ago where psychopaths, they would just look at somebody walking like from from behind, right? You saw that, right? Yeah, it's creepy. Yeah. Yeah. So there's an energy, either it's an energy, it's a posture, it's a demeanor that shows victim. And again, nobody, I know your audience won't think I'm victim blaming, but these bad people can feel it. They can smell it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's one example. And here's the crazy thing. And, and my thesis, in fact, had to do with this, which is what's called self-enhancement versus self-verification theory. A lot of listeners will hear this and go, oh, now it makes sense. Okay. So when you're talking about what if I'm a normal person, I'm a loving, non-violent, non-aggressive person, I won't treat you like a piece of shit. Well, if you meet somebody who's perception of themselves their self-narrative is i'm a piece of shit Mm -hmm. and you're trying to convince them no you're not you're great how do you think they react i've certainly met women where uh if you're nice to them
0: they look down on you and then when you go your separate ways they hook up with the biggest scumbag in the world
1: and that can be one of two different things in each case it's messed up of course yeah right um but in the case with people with a sense of like low self-worth they're not going to trust you Why would you be nice to me? And this is called the self-verification theory. And again, I had what's called the self-enhancement theory. I thought we were talking about depression, but also low self-esteem. It's the same thing. People who have high self-esteem or people who are not depressed tend to want to be with people who make them feel better. Mm -hmm. That's self-enhancement. And self-enhancement theory would be that someone who feels like shit or is feeling depressed would want someone to make them feel better. Okay? Mm -hmm. That's what you'd assume. But self-verification theory argues the opposite. And there's research that supports it, which is, People who feel good about themselves, yes, they want to verify that sense of self or their good feelings, so they'll be with people who make them feel that way. But if I'm a piece of shit in my mind, for someone to feel like they're a piece of shit, in most cases, their lives were chaotic, Mm. tumultuous, unstable, right? insecure
0: so they coalesce around having a self concept that is i'm a piece of shit but right. at least i have a box that i can put myself in and if i lose that then i'd spill all over the place is that That's it? a
1: different metaphor than i use but i like that it, one exactly yeah. i need that box that my reality contains me okay mm-hmm. and when someone else comes around and goes oh let's let the flaps down that's terrifying okay the example i use is that their concept is like a pole in a hurricane that's all they know in this crazy life is this is who i am a piece of shit And you're trying to tell me to let go and trust you. No, no, your concept is wrong. Hmm. That's terrifying. The research suggests the way to help them is you don't tell them they're wonderful or whatever. You go one notch or two notches above how they see themselves and you slowly build, build and pull them up to a reasonable level.
0: You know, you're a better person than you give yourself credit. There you go. Something like
1: that. Yep. Okay. Yep. So those kind of people are more susceptible to getting themselves into these relationships, not to blame them. Or if there's an asshole, this is funny because I've had so many patients go, what, do I attract assholes? I go, no, every woman attracts assholes. But some women, when they realize they're an asshole, they cut them loose. Right. (laughs) Right. You're not cutting loose. You're letting them stick around longer than you should. So some people do that as well for whatever reason, usually a neurotic reason.
0: Well, there's also what I was alluding to a minute ago, the person that attracts assholes and people that aren't assholes, and then she cuts all the people that aren't assholes loose and keeps the assholes. What's going on there?
1: Again, it's what they know. It's consistency. I just said this in my class this morning. The most important goal of human functioning is to learn to control or master our environment. When you have that sense of no control, insecurity, fear, anxiety, chaos, if it's something you're familiar with. People say comfortable. They're not comfortable with it. They're familiar with it. Uh Right? It's an illusion of comfort. I can predict it. My expression is better the devil you know than risk not finding an angel out there. Okay. That's why people don't leave them. At least they know what's going on.
0: Okay. So this person cheats on me, sometimes hits me and is generally inconsiderate to me, but I'm used to that. And it feels like stability.
1: It feels like familiarity and the familiarity makes me feel stable and the stability makes me feel secure. And by the way, if some people hear this, And they go, why don't we talk about the patriarchy and the people who think it's okay and blah, blah, blah. None of this denies, I'm not going to say patriarchy, but none of this denies that there are people who, you know, again, they're they're monsters. But the fact is nothing you you or I or anyone else says is going to change the fact that they're monsters. Yeah. Right? We have to help people be aware of this and to protect themselves. It's always easier on paper, of course. There's a wealth of literature on why people in domestic violent relationships don't leave the psychology behind it. Because people are saying, why don't they just leave? And why doesn't this intervention work? And why don't they just go to shelter? And there are so many factors involved, but most of it just boils down to, again, this sense of self and stability and just the fear of seeing life differently from how you're used to seeing it, even if it's shitty.
0: Could some people then be happier in an abusive relationship than in a non-abusive relationship? Is that something we're not supposed to say?
1: Yeah. And I don't know if happier, I'd say maybe sometimes more content. Okay. At times, yeah, um, more comfortable. And again, this is not logical. We're just saying that these powerful forces, these unmet needs, these traumatic histories, or little t trauma, whatever it was that prevented them from developing a stable sense of self, a sense of self-agency, a sense of self-worth. And we can't be talking with adult, logical, rational, prefrontal cortex thinking Mm. to somebody who's all up in the limbic system, who's all fear, whose child brain, whose lizard brain is on fire. We need to be able to build trust in the person who's trying to help them, for example. Sometimes they just snap. They've had it just too much, whether it's for a child's sake, whether it's shame, whatever it is, sometimes people, you can't predict. It's impossible to predict when the person will finally go, that's enough. Now the stats, I think it's like 7, it's either 7 or 13, I think, how many times they leave, come back, leave, come back. Like different jurisdictions have different stats. But then before they finally go, okay, I'm finally staying out. The odds are not on their favor.
0: I'm going to switch it up a bit and get to sexual domestic abuse, Mm -hmm. which, I mean, it can occur between husband and wife or boyfriend and girlfriend, but it could also be a child abuse situation Mm -hmm. too. Can we talk about the typical perpetrator of that? Is there a victim profile of that? I think there probably is. I guess stereotypically we talk about the kid that doesn't get enough
1: attention. Mm -hmm. Is that true? It can be, if all else being equal, like that they might be more susceptible, not for the sexual attention, but yeah. any attention, any validation. Right. So it's not that they're wanting it more. They are more likely to sort of seek out or other people might think this is a bit creepy or whatever because they've had that need fulfilled. Whereas this other person, a void is suddenly filled for the first time. So it's intoxicating and they might miss some of the other danger signs. Their radar might not be going off, whereas other children might. Again, not to blame the victim. Mm-hmm. Okay. But that's something about the person. But the circumstance, single children, OK, it goes back to they don't have the proper validation and so on in many cases, or just practically speaking, their parent tries to put them in, you know, in daycare or has someone watch them or something. And again, not to blame the parent either. It's just the circumstances are more favorable to a monster who wants to take advantage of a child like that.
0: I interviewed Jody Plochet whose father, Gary Plochet famously shot Jody's sexual abuser in Baton Rouge Airport in 1984. Have you ever seen that video? I believe, yes. A man I have walking it. through the airport yep. and the guy comes from the phone booth yep. and shoots him in the head. And yep. speaking with Jody, it was really interesting because he was saying like he knew that what Jeff was doing to him was wrong and he didn't like it. But at the same time, he liked Jeff and he didn't want Jeff to get in trouble.
1: Right. There's one thing that Anna Freud, Sigmund Freud's daughter, mentioned. the um, Identifying with the aggressor. Mm -hmm. people sometimes call it Stockholm syndrome it's a slightly different phenomenon but this idea that they build an empathy or a connection to that person they identify with them sometimes because that person's in a powerful position vis-a-vis them so they want to get the power by proxy sometimes that person tells them stories sometimes they are again it's about the emotions the love bombing almost it's a similar type of love bombing oh you're special you're this you're that they make them feel the ways that they didn't feel with other people so it makes them more susceptible to ongoing abuse and again none of this is to blame them
0: is it that sometimes they know the abuse is wrong or that? it's verboten something like that but at the same time they see it as an inconvenience or something they have to put up with for a little bit and then the rest of the time it's good because all the time leading up to the abuse the person is treating them well and then maybe after the abuse they take them and buy them a toy or ice cream or like you hear with the michael jackson thing well this is our secret it's a special thing that we keep between the two of us
1: yeah i've seen extremely intelligent adults rationalize things where you go There's no way you can put those pieces of the puzzle together that way. That's crazy, but they do it. So imagine a child whose brain is still developing, they're much younger, they're five years old, eight, ten, whatever, and they're being told all the right things, and sometimes being coerced with threats and so on. They have to explain it in a way that helps them make sense, that helps them not be plagued by anxiety. So they're twisting things around to make it not as bad as it is, as you say, it could be just an inconvenience, Or, but again, even adults, oh yeah, he beat me up, but afterwards he took me to the casino, mm-hmm. like, things like that. And again, if adults fall prey to this, why wouldn't we think a child would? So that can happen as well. The power of rationalization can never be underestimated or overestimated.
0: The perpetrator too. Well, the child has to learn about sex some way. It's not like I'm hurting them. It's not like there's blood or anything. And so it feels good for me. And you know what? I think it feels good for them too. So what's the harm? It's only your standards coming into this situation and trying to police it. You can see how people get to that. That's rationalization as well, right? Right.
1: So here's the thing. I'm on a listserv with some of the top sex experts in the world. We also have some pedophiles on the listserv.
0: Okay. Now, these are pedophiles who have offended?
1: Who've claimed that they have not offended. Okay. So one of my colleagues, James Cantor, I had him on my YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. And every time he talks, he drives people crazy. They hate him because they think he's justifying pedophilia or pedophilia. He's saying, no, but someone has to research it. We have to know what we're dealing with. Because there's child sexual offenders or child sexual assault. And then there's pedophiles. So not all child sex offenders are pedophiles, and not all pedophiles offend.
0: And then you've got pedophilic child sexual Exactly. Offenders. Yeah.
1: Right. Okay? And there's a lot of misconceptions about this. So here's what I say when I used to do this on the radio or TV. I'd start off by saying, any adult who cannot accept, who does not see the pain and discomfort and shock and terror and, and whatever that they're perpetrating against a child, I go, that by definition is a psychopath. I say, let's get that out of the way. So it's like what you're saying. If the person rationalizes, well, they like it, it's good, someone's got to teach them, all right? If they say that to themselves, and it depends on the age, here's the thing, We have to be very careful. What type of pedophilia are we talking about? We'll get to that in a second, okay? But if it's a little child, there's no way you can rationalize some of the stuff that they do to those children.
0: Well, there's no way that you should be able to (laughs) rationalize, but people still do. Well, Exactly,
1: and if they do, then I say that is a level of psychopathy, because how do you not, whatever your selfish urges are, to not be able to identify the pain and terror that you're causing, all right? So that's psychopaths. And I'll tell you right now, after I did those videos with James Cantor, I got contacted by many pedophiles. Mm. Some of them were really happy, thank you for talking about us, not like monsters and we don't want to blah, blah, blah. Others were so angry. Why are you saying that you shouldn't act on it? Even if you have those feelings, too bad, you can't act on it. Why would you say that? And then I got the kind that were saying, you know, look, don't you know, like at least 50% of the population are pedophiles. I go, where'd you get those numbers? They sound like they're in a cult. They're just making stuff up. And when you call them out on it, they just can't process it. And to me, those are psychopaths as well. And I got a vibe. I could tell, even if I'm willing to concede certain things, there's no concession in their mind. It's just, you must accept that any type of action I commit on any child of any age, if I say it's good, it's good. That's the height of narcissism, malignant narcissism. Like, I have to take a shower after talking to these people because it's just so manipulative. And this is over text exchanges. Yeah. Right? I still feel like creep. Like, I can feel it, I can sense it. But I've also done that in real life when I did assessments, when I could see whether it's a sex offender or just a liar who's manipulating, gaslighting, seeing them in action. Okay. Because I'm immune to it because there's no personal stake. I'm watching them in action. It's like watching a caged animal. I got the same kind of vibes. Totally devoid of any empathy.
0: I think a good way to explain to people the difference between the pedophilic and the non pedophilic child molester right. is that when the pedophilic child molester looks at the child victim, they see something akin to what I see when I see Pamela Anderson in the bathing right. suit, right? Exactly. It's just this overwhelming urge, like, must fuck it, right? right. But the non pedophilic, they're like, and this is going to sound awful, but there's a warm hole I can use. And then they might fantasize about Pamela Anderson in the bathing suit. Not
1: necessarily, but it's not their ideal. Right. That's not the people that they're naturally attracted to. It might be out of the opportunity, as you Mm -hmm. say, and then rationalize it. It can be out of control. It can be out of revenge. It can be out of hatred for the world. It's mostly about power and control. Some Mm -hmm. people lie and say, well, it's never about sex. It can be about sex. And they also are attracted to adults. So, again, children are not their primary, and it may not even be at all. It's just it's opportunity. So this is where people don't understand. They say that the highest rates of recidivism are for child sex offenders, and that's actually not true. Child sex offender rates are lower than the average rate of recidivism for other crimes because the average child sex offender who gets caught is the type that you're talking about. They're not a pedophile. They are somebody, let's say their kid's 12 years old, 14 years old, they had a birthday party, had a sleepover, dad has a couple of drinks, snaps a girl's bra, Or this kid sleeping over try something when he's drunk. That's not his inclination. One time, if he doesn't get murdered in jail, he's never doing it again. Whereas if someone gets caught again, now we're talking about a pedophile. They can't help themselves.
0: When you were talking about there can be other motives for it too, it conjured up a little scene in my head. So let's say we have this guy, Ken. He's not much of anything. He works at a deli. He doesn't really like his job. And Ken is married to Linda. And so Linda's always bugging Ken. We're low on money. Maybe rightly or wrongly, he sees her as being very critical. And she has a daughter from another relationship. So Ken's grudgingly going through his life, working at the deli, taking the streetcar home or whatever. And then at some point, he finds himself with Linda's child from the other marriage. And it's not that he's overwhelmingly attracted to her, even really strongly attracted to her. But he feels a need for some kind of release, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And he says to himself, I've got to get something more out of this because I'm not happy with her. And I've got to work at this goddamn deli all the time. And this is my bullshit life. So I'm going to take my little pleasure here. Is that something that, I mean, that's a very specific scenario, but (laughs) am I touching on it? Yes.
1: And that would be displacement. Okay. And that's all this impotent rage, whether at the world, at his girlfriend, at his life right and finding again it's finding an opportunity to channel that rage into something that you know that that now he's empowered okay mm. or again or it's revenge against the wife or something or you know power rebalancing and so on so yes lots of twisted motives and once again like i said the rationalization no matter what you're doing no matter what the context if you can frame it a certain way you can sleep at night it's it sounds crazy sometimes but it's amazing what people say or to themselves
0: well we all do this i think we all, all, all to some degree. through our lives and said yeah I made up that story about how this was okay, but it wasn't, right. but it's the amount that you'll do it, like how frequently you'll do it and the severity of the situations in which you'll do it. I think the worst people do it a lot with very severe.
1: Yeah. for sure. Um, again, this, it's all a spectrum. And speaking of spectrum, you know, one thing when we are talking about different types of victims, I'm just going to shift gears a little bit. Okay. Is because i got, again, back on the listserv. There's research that shows up to 40, I think it's 40% is the highest number where they asked people who had been sexually assaulted as children that I think it was up to 40%. I mean, they're getting 40 or even up to 60% said that it was either a neutral or a positive experience. And again, I've got these colleagues, some of whose motives I'm questioning, I get that self-serving vibe. I've Mm -hmm. spoken to them very respectfully. I've asked the right questions and so on. And others, I think they're just trying to just, they're being objective as possible. So here's the thing. Whether it's 40%, 60%, what they don't say, because I call them out on it. In many of the cases, A, it's a male with a female older person. So the child's a male, the female's older. And he's an older boy. So I say to my sex class, nobody can deny that a 14-year-old penetrating a woman is very different than a 6-year-old being penetrated by some 40-year-old. Yeah, exactly. Right. So people have to, again, when I hear people quoting statistics and I see that they're taken out of context or distorting them, I always question, like, I know they have an agenda and I think they should be called out. So yes, it's not a death sentence. It doesn't mean your whole life's going to be screwed up necessarily. Depends on the circumstances. Depends on if people believed you, if they supported you afterward, if you felt isolated, if you felt you could talk to somebody, like there's all these different factors. Who's the perpetrator? How long, how severe was the abuse? all of these different things and then the individual's own psychological resilience and so on, right? But especially the the narrative that was created afterwards, the people around them. Did they believe them? Did they give them justice? Did they not escalate? Did they tend to their emotional needs? All of this, there are so many factors that can prevent this from being, being like a death sentence because there's other people who had minimal damage, so to speak, and unconsciously or consciously, they use that as an excuse, okay? And there's other people who've had the most horrific crimes ever perpetrated sexually, physically, just every imaginable monstrous crime that you say how did this person not die and somehow decades later they're going strong they won't let it beat them so it's a whole spectrum of impact again based on the circumstances during after and the person's own internal functions
0: yeah i have a lot of paths to go with this one of the questions would be and i'll just sort of line them out is it true that people who are sexually abused as children are more likely to perpetrate question two would be is it true that people who are sexually abused as children are more likely to be re victimized, whether as children or as adults? I think I'll just start with those two
1: for now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Statistically, it seems yes to both. Again, you can't predict. If I know a child's been sexually abused, are they going to identify with the aggressor and then they're going to end up abusing others mm-hmm. or getting revenge on the world or whatever? Or that's just modeling? Or are they going to be so traumatized that they would never do it to somebody else or that they become so passive that they can never stand up for themselves and then they become more, you know, re-victimized? You can't predict which way it's going to go, but we can predict that, yes, it will have an impact in the way that you mentioned for both scenarios. So when that person
0: goes on to be the abuser... Is it that they have become familiar with this in the same way that someone who has been physically abused that we talked about later has? So this is, in a way, all they know. It's not all they know, but maybe sexually it's what they know. And so one of the ways that they get over what happened to them in the past is to say, okay, well, before I was the person that was penetrated or was acted upon, but now I'm older. Now I am the person who acts, so I'm no longer that other person this person is
1: right not the victim not right. the person yeah i disidentify identify with that um they're not thinking that necessarily hmm. but that's how it plays out protect yourself mm-hmm. okay and again how do i protect myself well i can get a gun i can be defensive i can be more careful with who i speak to or i can repeat what's being modeled for me mm-hmm. right so yes that does happen again it's not a well thought out plan conversely there are people who have rape fantasies who they were sexually abused And so they want their partner to beat them, to tie them up, to do these things. But they are reprocessing it in a more healthy way because they are in control. Mm -hmm. They want to, it's basically kind of exposure. the fantasy part. Right. the role playing. Right. Yeah. Okay. They're revisiting the trauma, but in a modulated way under their own control. They're trying to process it out. And some of them don't know what they're doing. Others recognize and they go, yeah, I know what I'm doing. You know, it's the only way I feel safe. And I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to exercise my demons, so to speak. How prevalent is child sex abuse in a domestic setting? Depends on the stats. I don't want to speak out of turn. I've got the numbers maybe for A for boys and 13 to 16 for girls percent in some studies. I was going to say that a study in Canada done about maybe seven years ago showed about in the military, I think it was 50% or above 50% of people had been exposed to domestic violence directly or saw a parent committed. Domestic violence is not sex. Right. But it right. can involve sex as well. I'm, just, okay. I'm okay. just broadening a bit just to kind of give context. Sure. When I first saw the study, I was like, yeah, of course. They saw their parents yelling. I looked at the criteria they used. Their um, operational definitions were like physical assaults, threatening death. Like These were serious cases of abuse. So in the military, it was like 50%. In the non-military, it was like 34 to like 40%. That's of all types of abuse. So sex abuse, again, we're talking usually single digits for boys, to high single digits, and maybe mid to high double digits for girls, like 10, 16, 18% maybe. So this way too high, and other people found higher rates. But you have to always think about selection criteria, how to get the sample, and how accurate is it? I would think that at least 10% easily, 10 to 20%, I think is a safe bet, unfortunately.
0: One thing that I have been meaning to call you and ask you about for a while is something that I can't quite reconcile. Mm -hmm. I think that you must be somewhat, somewhat attracted to a kid to be able to have sex with the kid. I don't think it's just a good and evil issue. Like, it's never occurred to me. I
1: do think that sometimes it does boil down to good and evil, where the person is just, again, they're angry, they're whatever, and they can dissociate from, not literally dissociate, but they just don't see it for what it is. Okay? With lack of empathy, they can do anything to this person. Might as well smash the kid's head in. I have a lot of patients who are quite a few patients who have obsessive compulsive disorder mm-hmm. and they have the kind where it's only rumination. There's no actual action. Mm-hmm. And the nicest people have the most horrific fantasies and it involves sex and violence against babies, children, family members, someone, you know, a boyfriend's niece or something. Yeah. Okay.
0: So they have the thought and then because of the nature of their illness, they can't stop having the thought. It just repeats like... You're not supposed to think this, but you are. You're not supposed to think this, but you are. It doesn't mean they act out on it.
1: No, but they're terrified thinking like, what kind of a person? It's not that they have the thought and then the OCD locks them into it. The OCD, I believe, creates that thought. And I tell them it's like a bad dream. It's like a nightmare. You don't have control over it. And once you've had it once, now you're starting to ruminate over it. Now, oh my God. And it just takes a life of its own. So what I'm saying is, you're right. In many cases, there has to be some form of attraction. But I'm going to argue that the experts would say, no, not always.
0: The way I laid out a paraphilic attraction, is it can be there, it can be a preference, and it can be a fixation. I like that. I think that works. But if you see the definition of pedophilia, it's always a preference. Mm. But I still think with all sexual attractions, there's still, it's there. Not everything that we're sexually attracted to is a preference. So you say like
1: it's second or third, uh, like we say not preference. Yeah, I
0: think there's people that are sexually attracted to children, they'd rather have a different type of partner, but they're still sexually attracted
1: to children. I would say yes. Those types of pedophiles, if they truly are attracted, are more treatable because they can learn to suppress that and and act out in a healthier way. But according to the
0: DSM, that's not what a pedophile is. It has a preferential attraction. So that's something I went around and repeated for years because I read it in the book and I'm like, it was given to us on Mount Sinai (laughs) by the APA. But then I just thought about it more and I'm like, no, I don't think so.
1: Yeah, I'd have to go check and see because the history of pedophilia in the DSM was messed up. James Cantor talked about it on my Mm. website. I won't get into it. So I I want to remember if it's the preference, the wording, if they truly Mm. literally mean it has to be a preference versus, you know, there's different types. And that's why I was saying earlier that we have to be able to understand these phenomena better because they're not going away. Whether it's 1%, half a percent, whatever the rate is, we won't know right? Mm-hmm. Whether they truly didn't offend or they did offend, you know, like we won't necessarily know. Some said, I never offended, did they just never get caught? So it's hard to know. But I will tell you one thing, and I am not a neuropsychologist, so I can only defer to what I've been told. The original studies show that brains of pedophiles had different structures than non-pedophiles. And mm-hmm. it was the myelin sheath. It facilitates conduction among the axons, right? So they had a deficit in myelin sheath. Now, I'm not sure why. Maybe that prevents impulse control. I'm not sure. That's why they act on those urges. Who knows? But here's the crazy thing. When they did more studies, they found that pedophiles who had been caught, like we know they actually offended, only they had that change in the difference in the brain. The pedophiles who claim not to have ever offended, and we have no record that they did, they have normal brains.
0: Yeah, so I would say that if I was betting on it, it's most likely to do with impulse regulation I would think so than actual attraction
1: to children well then there's another study okay that okay. they talk about of why there's an attraction and again I'm not arguing yes or no for these okay um, but it seems like it's a plausible argument that there's something messed up in the i guess the temporal lobe where their love for children and there's a study that supports this okay their love for children is the wrong kind so whereas we have awe mm-hmm. when we see kids and we have that you know yeah that kind of love theirs is a sexual type that there's some cross wiring okay yeah. and what one study showed was they gave pedophiles and non-pedophiles they had them look at pictures of like baby animals yeah and the pedophiles brains lit up to behave animals right, because they
0: saw the physical characteristics of the large eyes and right, yeah. yeah, the
1: cuteness and everything like that. And so they're saying that it's a sign of empathy that they have more love because they don't want to fuck these animals. They're yeah. just right. It's just is triggering that same kind of awe, but their awe gets twisted. But then you also humans. have the people who are just hypersexual, and sure. I would
0: argue sure. probably somewhat psychopathic, or they've got some kind of personality disorder, and so. They'll have sex with grandma. Sure. They'll have sex with mom. They'll have sex with dad. They'll have sex with the kid. They'll have sex with the dog. They'll jack off on your doorstep because the newspaper was there. Like there's that type too. And what would we call that? Like an omnisexual or something like that?
1: yeah i'm not quite sure that's yeah i don't i mean technically by definition would be omnisexual i don't know how much of it was actually about the sex versus you know the action or whatever like who knows i'm sure there's a term by instinct omnisexual makes sense but you know are they motivated by is it the sexual drive is it their sexual drive just being again manifested with anybody i'm not quite sure okay that part i'm not as certain about
0: there's got to be a level of hypersexuality where sure. if you just drive it up to the there, the person is just constantly sexually turned on and just always thinking about needing to ejaculate or let's say reach climax because yeah. like, guess theoretically it could be a woman too, but you know, typically we don't see that. Right. And so if you're just in that state at some point, I imagine that the target almost doesn't matter yeah. as much as the release.
1: Yeah, and that's the closest I'd ever say, and there's a big debate about whether you can be actually addicted to sex where there's a sex addiction and the brain doesn't light up the way it's supposed to, okay? So forget the terminology. What you described, it does happen where that hypersexual drive, you know, the, the libido on 11, that they just need that release and there's a lot of shame. It's outside of their control, Yeah, right? They just need that release. And so, again, the brains don't operate the same way that they're supposed to in normal addictions, but a compulsion out of control 100% causing distress impairing their functioning yes yes and yes and there's a bunch of people who claim no 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 you can't get addicted to sex to masturbation to porn and the problem is that when we're talking about things like this it's nebulous Mm -hmm. it's hard to get good research right? Uh, either volunteers or researchers who risk their careers on any kind of sexual deviance, okay? Quote-unquote deviance. And a lot of times the people are motivated by their own personal ambitions. Most often it's just like they're so committed to saying sex is okay no matter what. There's no such thing as addiction. Or others are going, no, it's wrong. It's an addiction. And whether we're talking about that, whether we're talking about coercion, whatever we're talking about, if it's non-standard sex, many times people's own, again, personal agendas overly influence how they do the research how they report the research, how they interpret it, you know, what kind of research they talk about. And I just don't find that they're that credible. And we can go into a whole other thing. No, I know what you mean.
0: Yeah, that is an issue with the study of anything or the reporting of anything, really. Okay, so let's go to domestic abuse taken to its extreme degree, which is something like a family annihilator. Mm -hmm. Now, we talked about Domestic violence being something like a dialogue, it's bi directional, you said. It was, it was, yeah, was, yeah, but it doesn't seem to be that way in family annihilators. There's certainly those that have been abusive beforehand, mm-hmm. but there's also the person who just kills his family one day and they seem really happy. Right. So, is that something that we should just separate altogether from domestic abuse and study completely differently, or are there useful overlaps there?
1: Well, it would be curious to see whether domestic abuse helped explain why that person became the way they did, right? Mm -hmm. Are they repeating a cycle? You know, it might have seemed like bliss on the outside, but we don't know what happened on the inside. Mm -hmm. And if all the people are dead, are we going to hear the story? And if they survive the person who did the horrible crime, are they a trustworthy or reliable narrator? So I think it's worth seeing whether, you know, there is some tie to domestic violence or is it its own category? The family annihilators, I don't know enough about. I've had people, again, they've murdered family members, Yeah, but not the annihilator.
0: One of the ways they're discussed is as typically men who yes. see their families as extensions of themselves. So they don't say, well... I might feel like checking out and not being alive anymore, but my wife may have different goals and views right. and my children, they have a whole future ahead of them that can actually work independently from me. Right. It's like, no, we are just a unit and these are my satellites orbiting me. In regular domestic abuse, we might see people like that.
1: Well, that's an issue of boundaries. Yeah. And with domestic violence, yeah, it, there's, it's always a boundary issue. Whether somebody has weak boundaries where they, they don't have a sense of self without a partner. And therefore, they'll put up with any horrific crap because they don't want to lose that part of themselves. It's like losing a limb, okay? Mm -hmm. Others, the poor boundaries where, as you say, if I don't care about myself, if I'm a horrible person, maybe overtly I might look like I care about myself. But deep down, I think I'm a piece of shit. But I'm a really aggressive piece of shit, okay? So I don't mind if I do bad things to myself. And as you said, if I'm so narcissistic that I see everybody else as an extension of me, right? Then, yes, I'm not thinking I'm harming them. Like, I'm just taking liberties with myself, Right. Okay, whereas others with their boundary breaking is you're not worth my concern. I can take liberty with you. Like, why would you question it? Okay, whether you're a family member or somebody else, right? Mm. That would be another example of poor boundaries. But in every single case, it is an issue of distorted, non-existent, or some type of you know, unhealthy boundaries.
0: What about something like rape occurring in marriage? I mean, we know that happens yep. also in just common law relationships too, or even lesser romantic relationships, rape can happen not just once, but As part of a pattern, Mm
1: -hmm. what's going on there? Well, this is where it gets really, really tricky. By the way, it wasn't until 1982 that women could even be raped by their husbands in Canada, right? But on the flip side, it wasn't until 1982 that men could be raped. Rape was only a crime against women up until 1982. So a little side note there. But what goes on with repeated things? So again, it's back to that mentality of I don't deserve better. Reframing it as he's showing me he loves me. Mm -hmm. Okay, They said it to me, patients, it's other type of violence, not sexual violence, but they go back for the sex and they tell me, they go, I'm so ashamed. I know this guy is a monster. He's terrible for me, but the sex is so damn good and nobody else measures up the chemicals. It's just like it's a powerful drug, so to speak. I've
0: heard that so many times, whether it's, she is absolutely crazy, but God, is she good in bed or he is callous. He mistreats me, but God is he good in bed. And so I was thinking about this the other day. And I was like, well, it seems that the type of people they're describing exist at the far extremes of the masculine and feminine poles. So, of course, you have neurosis more associated with women and really low agreeableness. So being disagreeable, being associated with men. And so, is there something, do you think, perhaps, about moving someone to the extremes of femininity and the extremes of masculinity, which might enhance their sexual prowess? On both ends. Yes, it can be.
1: Yeah, if it fits into the scripts that people expect. Yes. Dominance, submission. Okay? Control, mastery. And even the person who's in the submissive role, especially like in BDSM, there's a sense of control. Whether it's an illusion or not, somehow, if they can lie and tell themselves they're in control, they can do almost anything. Mm-hmm. Okay. So and again you have the hyper-masculine, hyper dominant. It could be in our chimpanzee DNA, where if the woman sees that, even if the guy's transgressing against her, just that idea in her brain, the schemata of he's hypersexual, he's hyper masculine, he's hyper dominant, therefore he's a desirable mate. Okay. Again, they're not thinking of it consciously, mm-hmm. but it could be triggering the parts in our brain that saying, Yes, go for him. Okay. Unfortunately it comes at a cost. Okay, but hey, there's still pleasure involved and that's why the pleasure and the aggression parts of the brain are very close together. So if you get smacked, the endorphins and so on. So how far do you go from smacking the ass to smacking the thigh to like a light tap on the face to a bit harder and so on? It's a spectrum. For some people, they can cross a line that nobody else would cross but in their mind, it's just part of the same narrative of this is just exciting. It's fun. It's, it's making me feel good. I'm feeling alive. I'm feeling present. The rest of the time, I feel like shit. The rest of the time, my life is boring. The rest of the time, whatever. Here's someone, they're taking the time. They're focused on me. This is a magical moment. It feels better that I can get my serotonin rush. You know, the oxytocin, everything. This is just thriving here. Okay? And then dopamine goes as well. Dopamine is not the pleasure drug, but it tells me keep going after this. It's mm. my dopamine surging saying, get more of that, get more of that. It's going to make you feel this way. So people can temporarily enjoy the moment and be able to block out all the horrible 99% or 95% of the crap. And then when they're removed from the situation, they distort reality and they focus only on the 5% or whatever of great stuff and they neglect or ignore the 95%, which is why they can keep going back.
0: Yeah, maybe a good point of comparison would be something like heroin. Mm -hmm. where it's like yeah but it makes me feel so amazing it's like yeah for that minute when you've got it and then it diminishes over time but your life is garbage you have no control you're broke you live in these fetid conditions But it's just like, yeah, when that comes, it's Mm -hmm. like there is nothing else I've ever experienced and nothing else. I mean, the movie Trainspotting did that really well. As you're saying
1: that, that's all I was thinking about.
0: Choose life. Choose a football team that doesn't work. Choose (laughs) buying lottery tickets. Choose buying a television. You don't need to worry about that when you've got heroin. Now we move it to the dependence on a person to make you feel in a way that you've never felt before
1: it's probably got the same effect, right? It definitely can. And you want more and more of that. And if it was consistent, it wouldn't be as effective. It's the jackpot effect. If I know every 10 times I'm gonna win something, I habituate to it, it's no longer exciting. But if I know if I keep pulling eventually, I'm gonna get a reward. Same thing with this. The guy, PCG's like, shit, 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 shit. At some point, something good's gonna happen, whether it's sex or flowers or something else. And every time it happens, what might register as a really as a one or a two on anyone else's scale is a 10 for the person who's living in this conditions. Mm -hmm.
0: All right. So what about people who cheat on their partner and there's more to it than just sexual desire? It's like they get a thrill out of it or sometimes they might even want the other person to know that they're cheating.
1: So by synchronicity, I was talking about this in class today. There's several different layers to this. Before I was talking about control or rationalization or anything like that. I say you can't overestimate that or overemphasize it. In this case, Everything, I always tell people, if they have a problem in a relationship, I say, I can guarantee you I'm always right. I can tell you what the problem is. 100% correct. Okay. And I go, not because I'm a genius, but because the answer is always the same. Everything that you could tell me, I could say, yes, that's important. But in the end, it's fueling a sentiment. And that sentiment is what drives all destructive, maladaptive, unhealthy, unloving behaviors in a relationship. Resentment. Everything. Now, here's the funny thing. When I've asked people, what does resentment mean? Well, I don't ask them that. They say if I say, hey, you sound like you resent your wife, no, no, I love her. It's like that doesn't have anything to do with it's not about love. Okay. Right? Yeah. Resentment is simply that I feel that you've wronged me somehow and I'm unhappy. So here we go. If I've wronged you, what does your Neanderthal or chimpanzee or you know caveman brain tell you to do?
0: Yeah, balance it out. So how? By wronging you back. Right,
1: exactly. Right? Ask your friends this. Some people will say, you know, kill them, smash right at the rock, whatever. Others just say get back at them. Yes. Mm. And so that resentment. It drives people to do things that can be so irrational. There's a few things about resentment I always tell people. One is it's, first of all, again, understanding what it is. It makes you need to get back at the other person. If you can't even admit that you have resentment to the other person, if you don't even acknowledge it, it doesn't go away you have this impulse to get back at them and if you're not even in control of it that's how you'll do things in passive aggressive ways okay you might forget to do things you might say things in less tactful ways than you normally would you might transgress you might step outside the relationship well fuck them they hurt me they wronged me whatever okay whether you're aware of it or not whether you're rationalizing well they don't meet my emotional needs so Okay, there's a whole bunch of different factors that can lead people to cheat. But here's the thing that I tell all my students, some people nod and go, yep. And some students are, no, don't say it. Mm -hmm. There's no evidence that humans are designed to be monogamous. Okay, there's no consistent evidence. Some people claim it, but there's no consistent evidence. On the other hand, we also are saddled with jealousy. So it seems that we may be designed to step outside of the relationship, even if we have a committed relationship, to cheat. To Mm -hmm. do it secretly. Because most people can't handle open relationships. The jealousy is too much. And by the way, here's a word no one ever uses, but it's called compersion. And is only in polyamorous or open relationships. It's instead of feeling jealous for my partner having fun without me, I'm happy for them. Mm -hmm. So if I know my wife's getting banged by two guys, I should say, good for her. Compersion. Okay? Most people can't do that.
0: Yeah, I suppose if there is a feeling and I am also having equal fun to my wife or more fun Mm -hmm. than my (laughs) wife in this arrangement it's probably fine but even if you are you probably don't process it that way
1: no because jealousy is the fear of losing something so if your wife's with somebody else like there's a risk that she's not coming back no matter what she says and we don't want to lose that security so it seems that stepping outside of the relationship should be done in secret for most people some people can handle it so what's going on here so there's two parts of the brain that are active in these times so the prefrontal cortex this is the part of the brain that goes, "I love you, I commit to you, I want to be with you forever, raise a family, whatever. Let's get our RSPs together. Suppose the we'll RSPs that can be perfectly fine. I can be fully 100% committed to you and love you in that regard. But then there's the limbic system that's saying novelty, novelty, novelty. Okay, yeah. I've habituated to my wife. I need something outside of that, so I can still love her and want to die for her. But my limbic system is saying, you know, my id, my libido, is saying, go for somebody else.
0: Is that also from an evolutionary point of view, is there something like diversify the genetic profile of your progeny? Because perhaps what you invested there, you don't know that it's going to work out genetically. Maybe there could be some latent gene that kills all the offspring, or it's just not the best you can do. So as a strategy, it's good to not only have a lot of children, but diverse
1: children. A, diverse children, and B, Back in those days, in the cave people days, they didn't live that long. How many kids can a woman pop out before she dies, right? Mm-hmm. So it's good to be able to, you know, to have a whole bunch go at the same time. And conversely for the women, even if she has a partner, it makes sense that she would be driven to find a better mate when she's ovulating, which we know women are driven to cheat more when they're ovulating. That's an evolutionary mechanism. Say, find somebody better. This guy is stable, he's secure, he'll take care of you. But get someone else who will actually give you good, superior genes. Now, again, nobody's aware of this. It just mm. seems to be in our DNA. And by the way, a little side note here. Olivia Judson, she's a biologist, I'm going to say. I could be wrong. But she's in the hard sciences. She did a special years ago. And one thing she showed was that the silverback gorillas, okay, she was showing some tribes where the men could have sex with whoever, but the women are 100% monogamous. They don't cheat at all. Okay, And the way that she showed that is in species where females are promiscuous, where they may have multiple partners at the same time, the male's penises either get more colorful, they have more functions, or the testicles get larger because they're competing against all these other guys. If she's monogamous, there's no evolutionary pressure to have bigger balls and Mm. and pregnant with your semen and your sperm. Anyway, the point is the Silverback Mountains, it's believed because these guys have tiny balls, tiny penises, because there's no competition. Mm -hmm. She's faithful to him. Then they did DNA testing. And they found 15% of the babies were from a father that was not the alpha male that (laughs) the one was with. So they learned. They were so good that the guys couldn't see them. And that's an evolutionary, that's very adaptive, right? If you're cheating on the king of the mountain, you don't want to get caught. Okay,
0: fascinating stuff. Finally, if somebody is in an abusive relationship... What do you advise that they do?
1: The person themselves or someone trying to support them? The person themselves. Okay. The best thing is to have a game plan before you do anything. Start doing a bit of research. Be very careful. Understand that there's a huge chance that you're going to unconsciously sabotage yourself. You're going to leave a web page open or some phone number, whatever. Okay. You have to be aware of that and just double down on security. Look at your resources. Reach out to somebody that you trust. Okay, I've had some people reach out to like family members, and the family members called the cops before the other person was ready. Wow, like just like bad stuff. So. It has to be something you trust you have to tell them look i'm reaching out and so on you get your supports in place whether it's financial whether it's a place to live whether you need to go to shelter shelters are horrible in most cases but you look into them but the support's the most important and be prepared you're going to go back most likely statistically speaking so if you do find a reason find a why if you're lying to yourself if it's for the children i don't want my child to be raised without a father like i was and so on yeah okay just talk to someone you trust who can tell you how much you're deluding yourself how much you're lying to yourself find a reason to help yourself for many people it's the kids but the support's the number one thing and having a game plan and you know this is going to sound like a cliche but have faith it might not feel this way I know it doesn't feel this way but have faith that you are worth not being beaten up not being treated like shit not being sexually abused right and these are just words nobody nobody in that situation believes it Mm -hmm. right when I say it but have faith that if you go in that direction eventually you might actually feel it strive for that strive to be the kind of person who feels that yes, I don't deserve to be beaten up or mistreated or whatever. I deserve independence to be treated properly. Think of how that might feel and try to envision how that could feel. It might be scary. It goes against your self concept, but try it and that might be the first step.
0: Okay, fascinating conversation as always Oren. thank, thank you, you for joining me in murder was the case. closing down the dive bar. everybody goodbye
1: This is a blast box media podcast